My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion. The Visitor. The Encounter. The Message. The Predator. The Capture. The Stranger. The Alien. The Secret. The Android. The Forgotten. The Reaction. The Chain. The Unknown. The Escape. The Underground. The Decision. The Spoke. The Departure. The Second Discovery. The Proposed Threat. The Mutation. The Separation. The Deception. The Suspicion. Resistance. The Unexpected. Sacrifice. The Diversion. The Answer. The Beginning. So the attack. The attack. That's what we read this week. What do you think of it, Greg? It took place at Legoland. (laughs) That is the most important thing about it. You're correct. Well, it was the only thing I got right in my predictions. So (laughs) yes, it is. Surprisingly, I did not anticipate that we would get a battle against the Howlers. But I thought it was really interesting. I spent a lot of time being like, Jake, have this discussion later. (laughs) Um, But it was really, it was a fun space battle. Mm -hmm. I like the space battles. Yeah. I might have loved this book more than you did. I love this book a lot. Great. I can't wait to talk about it. I mean, yeah, I'm in Jenny's camp. I love this book. I think it's one of the best Animorphs books. It's the, the, the pacing is so good. The plotting is so good. And it's like... Such a good all-out victory. And, like, Jake operating at, you know, 100% leadership capacity. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's, like, morally intense and emotionally intense. It's true. Just to touch on both of those really significantly. Like, just such a contrast with the last one, where it was, like, an interesting adventure, but, like, didn't really go anywhere. And this just goes so many places. It's true. Yeah. I did like it better than the last one. And I really enjoyed some of the... I I enjoyed the moral discussions. I thought they were really interesting. Mm -hmm. I also have so much nostalgia and fond feelings for this book because of its shippy nature. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It is very shippy. Yes. This isn't the book that takes place at Legoland. This is the book where Jake and Cassie kiss. For the first time. Yes. It's wonderful. It is wonderful. It's the kiss that saved the galaxy. It is the kiss that saved the galaxy. Love it. Well, do you want to hear what happened in this book? Yes. Yes, please remind me. So Jake has been dreaming about the Eye of Sauron that we met in book six. And then the team is at a school assembly when everything freezes and the Elemist, ugh, shows up. (laughs) He is his usual obnoxious self, but explains a little bit of the Elemist backstory. And it turns out that, as we know, the Elemist has an enemy. This enemy is named Krayak. Let's go with Krayak. That was my pronunciation in 10 seconds. Krayak? Krayak. But I don't know. Is is this the majority? I mean, we've established the Council of Anamorphology for (laughs) for things like that. Okay, so... If I, Pocket Universe if I seed on Krayak, or if I like go with Krayak, does that mean I'm seeding on Pocket Universe? That's correct. Yes. Choose wisely. I, I really, I feel like my independent choice is uh, is really important. But we have we have generally been unified on pronunciation. Yeah, except for Elvengor. <laughs> Yeah, I switched, That's true. I, I can try Krayak, but I'll probably screw it up. I mean, I did call him Kayak in all my notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I would say Kryak, because of the word Kayak. That's I'm definitely not sure it. I can take him seriously if we call him Kayak. Well, yeah. No, but it rhymes with Kayak. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you can't take that as a rule in English. That's well, like spelling. It's true. Yeah. For podcast listeners who haven't read this book, it's spelled C-R-A-Y-A-K. Feel free to comment wherever you're listening and tell us how you pronounce this. What are we going to do? We'll take a poll. In the meantime, we'll just follow our hearts. Okay, well. I'll, I'll start saying Kryak. I was going to say, now I want to say Kryak. Just because of the Kryak <laughs> thing. Yeah. You know what? Let's do it. Okay. Let's do Let's do Kryak. Kryak rhymes with Kayak. <laughs> hey, no. <laughs> I yielded this one. That means I don't have to yield pocket universes. <laughs> you don't have to, but you should. <laughs> All right. So uh, the enemy's name is Kryak, and he is a fugitive from another galaxy. We'll discuss. 
his whole thing is just he wants to destroy all life. Uh, so Crag and the Elemist are currently in a battle for a specific species, the Iskwort, and they've decided to fight over this battle using uh, seven champions. So Cryak is sending seven howlers, um, about whom we learned uh, when we were talking about the Chi in book 10. Nice. The Elemist is sending the six Animorphs plus Eric, the Chi. Uh, so they all get sent to this crazy Legoland planet occupied by the Iskwort, and they get into a bunch of battles with the Howlers where they are severely outclassed. Mm-hmm. They also learn that the Iskwort are actually a symbiotic species comprised of a Yerk, essentially, and a created species called the Isk, neither of whom can survive without the other. The Elemist wants to save this species, so the Yerks can eventually discover that there's a better way than conquest. Jake and Cassie finally kiss. It's adorable. Jake manages to morph a howler, and they learn more about how the howlers were created by Cryak. And it turns out they have this collective memory, but they're essentially children. They live for three years. They don't really know what they're doing. Jake finds a way to defeat them using Cryak against the howlers by infecting them with his own memories. So they give the howlers the memories that each of them has of their lives, and it shows the Howlers that there's a different way to live. And his idea is that if he gives the Howlers this memory, Craig is going to have to destroy these now six Howlers before that those memories infect the collective memory of the rest of the species, because then the Howlers would know that they can be defeated and that there is a different way of life. So he gives one of them all of the memories, and Craig destroys them, just right there. So they get taken to talk to Cryak, have a whole discussion, and then Jake morphs back into the Howler and learns that there's still a memory in their collective memory of Jake and Cassie and the kiss that saved the galaxy. And they win, and it's great, and then they are eventually, I assume, going to fight Cryak again. That is what happens in this book. Yay! It was a good book. I really, I did like the, I liked that they got to win, and mm-hmm. like when they get to win. And I thought, I like this in 13. Yeah. Sometimes they all they win on other times. But. but this was like a good this was a good win. And also I liked learning more about the backstory of the Elemist and Cryak. I was a little eye rolly about it. <laughs> but I did like learning it. Do yeah. you want to talk about that? Let's talk about that. I want to know whether you have warmed up at all to the Elemist, or if throughout this book you were like, ugh, every time he comes up. Well, my thing about the Elemist, actually, my thing about Cryak is that I was assuming that I was going to be on the side of whoever was uh-huh, against the Elemist, because uh-huh. I really don't like the Elemist, but it turns out, nope, can't be on Cryak's side. Okay, <laughs> we, we were curious. We were like, is, is Greg going to like Cryak just because she hates the Elemist? No. But he's hard to like. He's hard to like, uh, and... I don't necessarily like the Elemist anymore, but Mm -hmm. obviously in a battle that is about (laughs) one side wants to preserve life and the other side wants to destroy everything. Like the Elemist vision of the universe is like science and art and beauty and Cryax is like violence and destruction and perfectionism. Did you you pick a side? Yeah, I guess I'm on the Elemist side. Uh, did this whole Elemist versus Cryak thing remind you of anything? Because it reminded me of some things. Everything, every science fiction and fantasy book ever? Well, mostly Tolkien. I'm mostly <laughs> Tolkien. <laughs> I mean, it is the Eye of Sauron. Like, yes, it's actually yes, how he it's really described. Is. And the Elemist is very, very much in the tradition of the Tolkien good versus evil. Yeah, I, uh, specifically the battle where they were talking about, like, we fought and our battle destroyed, like, planets and species and all this stuff. I was like, this is very, like, early Silmarillion when, like, mm-hmm. all the Valar are fighting Melkor and, like, destroying the surface of the world that they've built. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then they 
both sides are like, oh, we were both really damaged by that. We both lost more than we want to lose. And so we're going to step back and sort of fight out our battle through smaller players. It's yeah. very much that. It and is. also, I mean, it's it's exactly the same thing, but it's very much the Cold War, right? Mm, like, mm-hmm. we created a terrible weapon, and now there's mutually assured destruction if we if each of us goes all out. So mm-hmm. we'll fight these little proxy battles and uh, try and cheat as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, as usual in a lot of these battles, the description of Crack is that the thing that he wants to destroy is, like, life in general, right? Mm-hmm. He, he wants a galaxy cleansed of creation. His goal is to destroy life. Uh, and he wants, in particular, his strategy is, like, rolling up species. So, like, having powerful species defeat weaker species until there's only one really strong species left, and then they serve Cryak. Right. That's, like, mm-hmm. his perfect vision. A single sentient species which would be subjugated by him. But then they talk about this battle, and it's the battle we fought destroyed a tenth of the galaxy, millions of suns, millions of planets, a dozen sentient races... The result was something neither of us could tolerate. Well, I don't know. That seems like exactly what Cryak wants. Yeah, but apparently it really hurt Cryak. Like, the fabric of space-time, the software, as you humans would say, uh, was damaged, twisted by the sudden explosion of our power. It was like the few strands of space-time he'd gathered to himself had been ripped away. So I guess he wasn't willing to destroy if he was also going to be hurt by it. Fair enough. So they're doing all these proxy battles instead. And I guess Cryak likes the Yerks because they're helping him do this roll-up strategy. Yeah. Seems like. But I did appreciate that the Yerks aren't like Cryak's endgame, right? So it's like... Yeah, I know. I sort of got the sense up until this point that it's very much like Animorphs are saving the entire universe. And like the only important thing is like Mm -hmm. Animorphs being the chosen few Mm -hmm. that will stop the Yerks. And then you're like... Let's zoom out a level. The Elemist is this kind of, like, good godlike figure fighting the evil god, but the Animorphs and the Yerks are just one, like, tiny piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And so I like the kind of Jake's metaphor where he's like, I'm an ant on the chessboard. Mm -hmm. That's That's a more fun way to play with this, like destiny and higher powers thing than just like yeah. you're the prophesied savior. They aren't just the chess pieces. They are ants like looking at the movements of the chess pieces. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice to have sort of that largeness of scale and it's repeated so many times the elements is like well, I can't really explain it. It's too complicated. Mm-hmm. Like, And so you do get this picture of like we can't even know how this one conflict fits within this vast. Yeah. And, and the elements is like the stakes are not if the escorts survive, the Yerks will change. Mm-hmm. He's saying there's a chance in 300 years the Yerks will change. <laughs> so this is what this is what we're playing for, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it was interesting that like even though we've seen before, I mean the elements created the time matrix or something like that. Maybe it was Tobias. We don't know. Um, <laughs> Spoilers, Jimmy. Don't tell me. <laughs> we- We've seen the Elemist playing with time, and in this book, we don't see any of that. Like, it seems like both yeah, the Elemist really and Kayak are playing this very long game, but they don't know what's going to happen. Uh, there's this whole thing where, like, maybe Kayak's been showing up in Jake's dreams, and maybe he's been doing that to get the Anomorphs to come to this battle. Mm-hmm. Presumably, he regrets that afterwards. Like, this it didn't go the way he wanted it to go, but mm-hmm. he didn't know that. Unless that was all part of the plan, but, you know we get the impression that, like, they are moving through time linearly in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, in general, my complaint about the Elemist stands, which is I don't like god figures, um, and his approach to being a god figure I find very annoying. But it is interesting <laughs> that he's come down for relatively minor things. 
So it really is, I understand, they're ants on the chessboard. But like, what exactly is your endgame that requires Elfengor to like go back into the battle instead of staying to raise his kid? Um, creating the Animorphs. Yeah, but why, again, this is like ants on chessboard. <laughs> why the Animorphs? This is one small battle in a like 500 million light year galaxy yeah, of things. I guess what we're saying is like, I mean, if the small things don't matter, what is going to matter? Like, small things add up to big things. Like, this is a small thing that matters. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is a small thing that matters in this particular battle. He would not have won this battle without the Animorphs. It's important that they are who they are, and they bring their skills to this battle. And also, it's they sort of get into this where there's kind of the... Um, you know, it's a seven versus seven match, and mm-hmm. they're playing for the fate of the Escort, right? Mm-hmm. And they're kind of like, why us? Surely there must be other people out there in the galaxy, Axe right? Is so, like, why not seven trained Andalite warriors? And Marco's like, hey. <laughs> I was wondering if Axe was just like trying to get a rise out of Marco. There. <laughs> Probably not. Maybe. Um, but then Tobias and Jake are kind of like, they're both kind of like, yeah, there's probably some like side action going on here that mm-hmm. we don't quite understand. Mm-hmm. And what you realize is that, sure, maybe there were other ways the LMS could have defeated the Howlers, but the Animorphs are the ones who defeat them with like, the power of empathy, right? Mm-hmm, like, yeah. they can't bring overwhelming force to bear against the Howlers, but they use psychological tricks, mm-hmm. they use evasive maneuvers, mm-hmm. they understand what they're doing, they have the morphing ability, which allows them to figure out what the deal with the Howlers is right. in a way that allows them to not only win this battle and save the escort, but basically force Kryak to take his most powerful fighting force off the board entirely, right? Yeah. So so it's actually like they were fighting for the saving the escort, but the way that they did it destroyed the Howlers. Yeah. Right, which is like, or not destroyed, but corrupted them to the point where they're useless for Craig's purposes. We should explain, which is that because that kiss memory survived, the Howlers are so psychologically simple that the next time they go out and try and conquer a species, they're going to try and make out with them instead of kill them. (laughs) Which weirdly is not what Craig wants, so it doesn't go that well. Yeah, I actually thought some of that was very reflective of what we a little bit of what we talked about in 23 where what they learn is where humans fit in the scale of things like prey versus predator yeah. and here i think there's a little bit of that too that humans are so clever in a lot of ways but one of the ways that they're clever is they have this ability to think outside the box mm-hmm. right they're right. Not, adaptable yeah Adaptable, and they're bringing in their own memories. I mean, to play literally here, but they're kind of remembering who they are individually and using those individual experiences to create a battle plan Mm -hmm. that the Howlers, for example, would never be able to do, the Escort would never be able to do because of the way that their system operates. And I thought that was just really kind of cool. And it's also really reflective of how the Animorphs are not horribly losing this war in general. Like, they are very badly outnumbered and outclassed in a lot of ways against just the Yerks and their everyday battles. And it's their, like, flexibility and ingenuity and sneakiness, like, and cleverness. Like, these are all of the things that are enabling them to get the victories that they get. And it's just, it's kind of awesome that the Elmist was like, okay, Howler's really, really tough. Maybe I could find seven just, like, really viciously brutal fighters that could take them out 
but he instead decides to go this other route that, mm-hmm. like Ted was saying, has sort of the better, it doesn't just destroy these seven howlers, it destroys the effectiveness of the species. And yeah, I really like that he's like seeing the value in like, okay, the way they fight, I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but like, I want their ingenuity in this mix. Mm-hmm. Before we get into more like what the Animorphs are doing, I had one other thing about Crike and the Elemist. Mm-hmm. So like, they're definitely set up as this good versus evil thing, and they talk about how um, the Elemist talks about how Crack wants uh, control over the very laws of physics and nature. And I think we're supposed to think, so not merely to see them and understand them, but to hold them in his fist and dictate them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's supposed to be like a very intuitive appeal to like, that's a bad thing. Like, no, no, no. And I feel mm-hmm. like we've seen this before in the Animorph series mm-hmm. with like the talk about cloning and creating these mm-hmm. monstrosities on the hork homeworld that like somehow you know, changing the laws of nature is, like, inherently immoral and corrupt, oh. which is, like, outside of the, the context of this kind of, like, epic space battle or whatever, that's not a good philosophy, right? Like, there's mm-hmm. nothing there's nothing inherently good or bad about the laws of physics and nature as they are, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the problem with Cryak is either that he's, like, killing sentient things or that he is is uh, tampering with things in an unsafe way. And maybe mm. then by doing this, he will lead to some bad outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. But the idea that it's like inherently bad, it's to, like, like unnatural. So it's bad. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like that, I don't, that, that seems yeah. like a, a, a bridge too far for the Elvist. And it's, I don't know. I mean, it's, I don't know that we've seen it that frequently. Maybe I'm just not thinking of it. Cause it feels a little bit like an outlier idea in the Anor series. Well, I mean, they didn't have that discussion about the Arn. Really? Right. There was just that one throwaway line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wonder if it's like an idea that like Apple Grant hasn't really examined or... Well, we talked to like the Vember in 25 was also oh, yeah. similar. Like, oh, we've brought the species back from the dead and now they're being killed. You know, like... Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. The, but there was never that discourse about the Horpajir. Like yeah. the Horpajir being unnatural or wrong. Like that was never really brought up. Mm-hmm. And with the Vember, I mean, clearly like... I, I guess with both the Vember and those monsters, it was about control so maybe it's more not like changing the laws of like nature to be different, but it's about wanting to control the laws of nature in such a way that like you're controlling other sentient or other beings. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Control is different from change or manipulate. Yeah. yeah. And there's um, I just wanted to mention this thing. Uh, so the Elemist is talking about how Cryak wants this species roll up. He wants there to be only one species, single sentient race, which would be subjugated by him. What is this guy, a Nazi, Cassie said? Which, like, it's always interesting to run into references to Nazis from more than, like, three years ago, mm-hmm. because it's just such a out-there idea, at, yeah. like, for so much of recent history. And, and the Elmist is like, yep, yeah, <laughs> basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Elmist is like, in the moral sense, yes, but... He has different visions of what constitutes total power. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's interesting. We have sort of fascism and the Cold War going on here. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like the the Yurks are also like a Cold War metaphor, right? Like, Mm -hmm. which of your friends is a secret communist? Whereas Krag is more like, I'm just going to kill everyone, Uh which is more (laughs) like the Nazis. Yeah. In a very simplistic sense. Ted, you were saying that the Elmist had, you know, Elmist and Crack both had side bets in bringing the species they did, and Elmist really won his side bets. And I wonder if one of the side bets, in addition to the ones you mentioned, was also not only are the Animorphs maybe going to be able to take out the Howlers, etc., but they're going to witness what the Escort are doing, and the Animorphs are currently fighting the Yerks. Yes. So that's that's an interesting, like, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that moment. Well, I think Cassie articulates that the Yerks have another way out, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I love this vision of a potential end to the war, because it's like not something that they've thought about. Elfingor feels bad about killing all the Yerks um, that are just in a, in a pool ship. You know, the Animorphs kind of feel bad about killing Yerks when they're not in battle, but we talked a lot about involuntary combatants and all this. And this mm-hmm. is like, this is one way out. The Yerks could bioengineer hosts or change their own biology to make them symbiotes instead of parasites. And like, mm-hmm. that's another valid way for the things to go. Yeah. And so, well, and the, we've been talking about that. Yeah. That there, that there are other options for them. They could Robot create bodies. Robots. Yeah. They could, you know, they, there are a lot of other things. And I loved, I got very excited at that part <laughs> of the book because, so what seems to have happened is some some Yerks managed to make their way to this planet, but like just some of them. So they're not part like a of a really the long time ago. A they long call time themselves ago. Yurts. They like have diverged so much that they have a different name. Right. They're totally different from the Yerks, but they're the Yerks. So they were parasites and they created the Isk, which are, you know, this this symbiote for them. And then the Animorphs are like, wait, so you created a race of people that you enslaved? Yeah, and they're like, no, 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 we're true symbiotes. We can't live without each other. And I was like, that's not enough. Because like, if you're if you modified yerks and humans so that humans needed a yerk in their brain to like be alive, they would still hate it. Mm-hmm. Like, so I think they don't quite mention this, but I think it must be like the is- the isk don't really have a native brain, and so like yeah. the yurt is like their brain. So it's like you have the body and the brain that can live separately, which is kind of a cool idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and. And so they actually are one being. The Yort used biological engineering techniques to design and create a species specifically to be a symbiote. So again, it's kind of the created species. Right. But it's for this purpose. And I think it is interesting that the Yort, that they modified themselves as well. So Mm -hmm. to be true symbiote that neither could live without each other. Because it'd be very easy to just create a species to be their hosts without mm-hmm. modifying themselves to need the host, yeah. right? And it, it's very much like Aftran and Cassie's philosophy mm-hmm. of like parasitism is inherently wrong, right? right like yeah. there's no way that that's going to fly. Mm-hmm. You have to be willing to sacrifice your own autonomy and become a symbiote in order for yeah. this to be an okay situation. Right. And it's amazing that apparently this entire civilization uh, that must already have had hosts because they were managing to do things like build other species. They had this sort of collective movement towards this like realization that like, okay, what we're doing is morally wrong and we need to change it. Yeah. Like, that's, that's a really impressive bit of social change that happened. Mm-hmm. Well, and Cassie is of course the first one who kind of calls this out and says, it's the only way parasite becomes symbiote, no more infestation. They create the next step in their own evolution, become true symbiotes. And Eric says, no more war, no more need to conquer. So Cassie kind of gets it. And I think her... Yeah, her Cassie's been looking for this ever since 19, I think. Exactly. And she now they understand like there is a possibility. So what do you guys think of the escort society? I, I don't know. I have some mixed feelings on it. It's pretty silly on the face of it. It's very specialized. Um, I, I mean, I have some thoughts about portrayal of alien species in general, but I have a sense you're getting at something specific. So I was just thinking, you were talking about how the, the Yerks and the Yort share a common ancestry. And I was kind of thinking like, okay, so this is what, if the Yerks became symbiotes, what if their society would kind of evolve in this escort-like direction? Mm-hmm. They don't seem at all like the Yerks we know. Right. Except for the, like, warrior guild uh-huh. escort that we meet, right? right. Mm-hmm. So what if this is the society 
basically that already exists on the Yurk homeworld. And, and the know. group of Yurks that escaped are just this particular <laughs> war-loving, belligerent group, uh-huh. right? So imagine the, the warrior escort here going off and founding their yeah. own civilization. Hmm. It would For- be this kind of... So, like, the the... Here they're highly specialized, right? Uh-huh. But if the one highly specialized belligerent group escapes Became, yeah. outside of the context of everything else, then of course they become this imperial civilization. Yeah, and for context, for people who haven't read the book, yeah, the warrior guild of Iskort, like, apparently just go around attacking people. They'll just attack off-worlders randomly, and they're just like known pests, basically. Known menaces. Um, I guess they're a little more than pests if you can't morph. But yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it seems like the guilds in the uh, in escort society seem to be inherited. Um, so I guess most of the Yerks born from the Warrior Guild of Yerks, theoretically, would then also be the warrior types. Maybe you'd get some who aren't, or maybe some got taken in those original pools who aren't, and those are the ones that Esplin was talking to in the Herpager right. Chronicles, who were like, no, we missed the pools of home. Right. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Was it true? Was Guide's family um, all also traders or or merchants? Yeah, well, Guide right. was the skin son seller. of skin seller, brother of memory harvester, or something like that. <laughs> oh my god! I, I love their industry. It's amazing. <laughs> the escort are hilarious. They they're are hilarious. so funny because it's like in like the Endwarfs. It starts out they're like. So first, Jake has this great thing about like, oh, I've learned, you know, uh, who you are isn't only skin deep. I've learned, you know, like <laughs> the Horkajir are like menacing, but they've got great hearts. You know, like I've, I've really turned over because a new leaf. Because morphine's really changed my and perspective then, on this. As yeah. soon as he sees an escort, he's like, this is a face not even a mother could love. And it's the most <laughs> annoying creature that I've ever encountered. To be fair. They are incredibly annoying. There is ambient Fran Drescher voice happening <laughs> at all times. In, on the Escort homeworld, because they have these mid-body diaphragms. <laughs> Even are... Cassie's annoyed by it. <laughs> so they have this merchant uh, guild that they meet when they first get there, and they like they sort of accost the Animorphs. They're like, they, they want to buy their memories. Uh, come visit my execution parlor. Don't even want to know. <laughs> give me your clothing, and I will give you credit. Here, eat this larva. Let it gestate, and we'll split the proceeds between your heirs. You stink horribly. I will cleanse you. <laughs> Rachel's like... Hang on, I know how to handle this. I know how to get rid of pushy salespeople. She steps out front, hands on her hips. We're just here to use the bathroom. Can you tell me where the ladies' room is? <laughs> what a power move. And they're all, like, confused and back off. It's brilliant. It's amazing, yeah. Oh, Rachel. She's such a good shopper. She has so many skills that get used so often in this, and the shopping skills get used so rarely. It's just wonderful when they come into play. Yes, I do love it. And, right, so they meet this escort called Guide, who is, uh-huh. like, the one person whose services that they require. Right? right, right. And then he's, like, super annoying. He keeps asking them for body parts. Yeah. He, he's going he's gonna to sell Wants to buy their money. memories, wants to buy their body parts. They end up, actually, they afford Guide by selling six inches of Rachel's hair to the escort. <laughs> <laughs> so Rachel now has this new fashionable haircut. It's amazing. Now they want a kidney. Yeah, but so then Jake, like threatens threatens Guide, basically saying, like, we're going to kill you if you don't stop being annoying. <laughs> and just, Jake was like, it was pretty effective. Now he only bothered us for our body parts, like, once an hour instead of constantly. <laughs> but they do end up with this great agreement with Guide where they, which is very smart, they're like, okay, we need him to be invested in our survival because otherwise he'll definitely just sell us to the highest bidder. So they're like, okay, Guide, 
if you keep us alive, at the end of this, we'll sell you copies of our memories because they have this whole memory industry where you can like watch memories on holograms, which comes up a lot later. And uh, so Guide is like, that would make me the richest escort in the world. And so he's really working for them the whole time. Right. And then doesn't he get all of Eric's memories too? Like from He gets Eric's hologram technology. Right, 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 right. Because the memory that they get to watch is actually like a thing that they put on. Mm-hmm. Like I think it was like a headset or something. Yeah, and yeah. that allows them to experience other memories. Right. And he's like, I have this hologram. You could project it. And more than one person could experience it at a time. And Guy is like, yes, I would <laughs> yeah, do anything. The there end, are like dollar signs flashing in Guy's right. eyes. Right. And then at the end, the Elemist even makes a reference like Guy is going to be like a the very, richest. very rich escort. Right. So I, this is now, this is the, this is the crack fanfic that I want. Like <laughs> the tyranny of Guy, like as he takes over the whole escort industry. Yeah. Well, it's he he's going to create economy. the escort Hollywood, where they just right. now watch these memories of of uh, Eric cutting Catherine the Great's hair. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but then the way that so the Animorphs just can't stand the escort, and they're like, <laughs> "Why on earth are we trying to save them?" And it mm-hmm. isn't until they learn about this symbiote thing that they kind of put the pieces together. Mm-hmm. But at that point, they've met like. The warrior escort, and then like the servant escort, who were just trying to like be super accommodating. But then they keep meeting more and more. There's like the gardening escort, the and then the, yeah, the the industrial escort, and then finally they get to the marketplace. And guy just like, well, of course you need people to buy things, so the you know the merchants have someone to sell it to. And Rachel is like, I have found my people. <laughs> the this shopper is, escort. This is where I belong. <laughs> Um, and then <laughs> the economy cannot function without people to buy things. Guide, you are finally making sense, Rachel said with great satisfaction. I mean, he's not, let's be clear. <laughs> but also, love it. And then, like, Jake is like, okay, so how are we going to get the howlers to know where we are and fall into our trap? And Guide is like, well, <laughs> I will have to just let the um, news gossip and speculation guild know, and then the howlers will be here in no time. So, you know. Tobias is like, Legoland meets Dr. Seuss with a population made up of whining nutbags. No offense, guide. Yeah, I'm sure he wasn't yeah. offended. But it's Who like, think go- shopping and gossiping are careers? Hey, don't diss my brothers and sisters of the Shopper Guild, Rachel said with mock ferocity. They have a whole influencers <laughs> guild. It's amazing. <laughs> or like, more like a Twitterati, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so can I just very quickly say one of my um, issues with this book? Okay. Which is, the Elemist and Cryak have decided that they are going to send their champions to this world mm-hmm. in order to save it or mm-hmm. destroy it, whichever side you're on. And apparently, the plan is just send them to this crazy world and hope they bump into each other. I mean, they probably send them pretty close together. As opposed to what I was expecting to have happen, which is they show up at this world and there's a, like... You know, arena. seven men enter, one man leaves, like mm. arena where they were would go in and, and fight, which would be a better solution for. It'd be better for Cryak. For Cryak, definitely. I bet that this is like this was like the Elmist's condition. Like he he like, managed to sell Cryak on this. They're just like wandering around, hoping that they bump into each other, and then the animorphs have to spend most of the book 
finding hiding spots because that's not a great way for them to have this fight is like well, being chased. It is a great way. Like if they were in an arena, they would just be dead. It is great that they have the flexibility to find hiding spots and have time to strategize and use the resources of the planet and hide behind the escort, which is very beneficial to them. It is. I just think that if I were the Alamist, I would have more given them time also, but like, or information. Outside of everything we know about the Howlers and the Animorphs, the fact that the... So, like, the Animorphs are kind of like, uh, they're running and running and running and trying to get away. And then they realize that part of the rules of engagement are the Howlers aren't allowed to kill the Escort. And yeah. they're like, that's amazing. We can... <laughs> Use the escort as like as it, cover, as, yeah. right? As cover, as innocent hostages, right? Which is like you know the howlers are like supposed to be evil, but the fact that they follow the rules of engagement and don't kill innocent people in the struggle, whereas like the animorphs are kind of willing to leverage them against them in in their defense. <laughs> but they know that leveraging them won't get them hurt. Well, <laughs> that works. Sure. <laughs> they're pretty sure, and that that makes sense in the context of like this kind of situation where like the howlers mm-hmm. are like so powerful and fast that there will not be any they know there won't be any collateral damage but like mm-hmm. that's not at all how combat works in the real world <laughs> so what this is is like they've infiltrated an urban setting and they're using the civilian population as cover which is yeah it would make them pretty much the bad guys in most circumstances yeah which is yeah. again like the animorphs are like a lot more like a terrorist cell than <laughs> they realize. And I mean, sometimes Eric gets to has like a hologram of the escort around them. Yeah, it's not always real escort. escort. But my so. favorite moment of that is at the end in the final battle. Eric just has guide <laughs> just hanging around his neck as he's like. <laughs> I- and his court shield, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and Guide is just hanging on to him for dear life, hoping that the Howlers don't, like, lose their temper and decide to shoot through him. Presumably the Howlers could kill an escort, and then Kryak would lose, right? Yes. So it's like it's not like the escort are guaranteed to survive. It's just mm-hmm. like, yeah. you know, Kryak would lose the game. Probably if they did that, the Elemist would be allowed to bring the escort back to life. Oh, I, I, I like that. <laughs> That's my guess. It is one of those cases where, within the rules of this world... It makes perfect sense that the Inmorphs act the way they do. It's justified. It's all fine. You cannot extrapolate it to normal non-sci-fi circumstances. It's like we were talking about the Herbshire Chronicles episode. Like, you just... The parallels are sort of begging to be made, but then you can't make them because it's just... It doesn't work. Which is a weird aspect of sci-fi sometimes. Mm -hmm. I did want to return to a thing. You were saying, like, if I were the Elemist, I would, like, give them time and stuff. So here's here's my, my suggestion for why that didn't happen. I bet the fact that the combat takes place like this and not in an arena is extremely beneficial to the Animorphs. That's why they're able to win. And I bet the Alamist chose that aspect of things and had to make some sacrifices, like didn't allow them any time to prepare, didn't give them any information about the planet beforehand. Like those were probably the concessions he had to make in order for the combat to take place like this. Yeah. I mean, it is beneficial to the Animorphs that they are in essentially a guerrilla warfare style. Yeah, that's their thing. thing. But it's not... The fact that they win is a testament to the intelligence and empathy of the Animorphs, mm-hmm. which presumably the Elemist knew. Yeah. But it's also really lucky. 
Yeah, but I think he had to... They are very lucky people. (laughs) I think he had to create the opportunity for them to have luck because in an arena, they would just lose. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's fair. It's just such a weird way to fight this particular battle. Well, he's also... He's really gambling on luck because this is such a high-risk, high-reward situation Mm -hmm. for him. If the Animorphs die... I mean, he's betting on the war against the Yerks, too. Like, that's part of his thing. That's an enormous blow to that. Which, honestly, I'm surprised they didn't bring out more in discussing whether or not they should do this. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but if they win, which they did, it has these huge mm-hmm. far-reaching consequences. Yeah, definitely a gamble. What do you make of the Cryak and Jake relationship? I don't know. I'm not sure I make as much out of it as I feel like maybe I'm supposed to. Well, I was just thinking, they have this whole thing that sort of doesn't... So Jake, when uh, Tamrash was dying in his head, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't whatever the element says, he crosses the veil between life and your uh, human constraints. Blah blah blah. I, I don't know. When the year died in your brain, you peered across the line between life and death. You broke the dimensional hole that blinds humans to things beyond themselves. All right. the fourth wall. Fine. Sure. Definitely. The fifth wall. The that fifth thing. dimensional wall. Anyway, Jake sees Cryak, and Cryak sees Jake. And I guess gets really fixated on him and then haunts his dreams and keeps saying, Mm -hmm. soon, soon. Mm -hmm. So, like, I wonder how that plays in to, like, is that Elmas somehow manipulating Cryak because to sort of accept the Elmas terms because he gets to defeat Jake? Like, Mm. because it seems like at the end, they've kind of doubled down on this thing. Like, you haven't seen the last of me. (laughs) (laughs) So you think Cryak actually has a personal investment in Jake and is not using this as like a way to manipulate Jake? Well, I guess, I guess I don't know, because you could just say the dream is all in Jake's head and it just so happens that the Alamest was going to come back one day and like, I don't think that the dream is Jake. But so like, why is Cryak taunting Jake? Is there a reason for Cryak to think that that it's good for him to have the Howlers defeat the Animorphs? Is he trying to do like his thing in the side bet is like, okay, well I'll I'll tempt you know Jake into coming after me, but then it'll be easy for me to kill him, and then my Yurks will go do their thing. Like what? Yeah, I mean that might also have been a concession, like or like something that Cryak wanted. Cryak really wanted the Elemis to send the Animorphs because he thinks that Howlers can defeat them, and mm-hmm. that helps him so much in the war against the Yurks. Or he doesn't think of it that way. The spreading of the Yurk Empire. Yeah. But it does seem like he is fixated on Jake in a weird way. Like, at the yeah. end... It's just, like, a... really weird. Like, what yeah. about the Tamarash thing? Like, is that just a coincidence? Like, right. mm-hmm. uh, certainly all humans who have Yurks in their head die. Do they all see Cryak? Did it just happen to Jake? I don't know, like, yeah. Uh... But I don't think so, because at the end, when they have that discussion... Cryak turns to Jake and is like, sleep well, human. I'll still be there in your dreams. Remember how we were saying in book six that like, wow, what a weird coincidence that the Yurk who was in Tom's head managed to get into Jake's head. And we were like, well, maybe he was a go-getter Yurk. That's the kind of Yurk who, you know, rises under Vista 3 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And... But maybe the reason that, you know, Jake kind of passes out a little bit, his head is in the Yurk pool. Maybe the reason that Tamrash specifically was able to get into Jake was one of Cryak's like chess game manipulations. Oh, if mm. Temrash is like is like Cryak's Elfingor kind of, right? right? He's like one of he his gets avatars. To invest the leader of the Animorphs, get rid of the Animorphs, strike this huge blow for the war on Earth. Hmm. And uh yeah, and so Cryak was really carefully watching that operation. That's but so he amazing. wasn't allowed to interfere beyond letting Temrash, or, like, helping Temrash infest Jake. You know what that makes me think of? I know we had a whole different theory about this, but in Book 7, 
there was kind of like, it's the future without Axe, right? It was kind of one of those things uh-huh, where it's like, uh-huh. oh, the universe went on this thing, but without Axe, somehow yeah. it would have gone really bad. So, like, the only reason that Temrash infesting Jake doesn't work is because Axe is there and he oh. he makes Temrash lose his cool, right? So you could uh-huh. almost imagine, like, in some version of the capture, there's, like, this uh-huh. insider. Cryak has an insider on the Animorphs for a while and then takes them all down. And that's how we get to this really bad future, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, hmm. I, I really like this idea. That- hey, maybe the reason that the Animorphs could hear Axe's cry in book four was the Alamist. Right, exactly. Yeah, maybe this is, like, the things that are, like, okay, that kind of strains credulity, but, like, I guess that worked in their favor. Maybe that is sort of the chess game. Right. And it works better in dreams than in mm-hmm. reality. So mm-hmm. they could hear... Axe or Cassie had didn't Cassie have a dream about Yeah, Cassie Axe? and and Tobias were dreaming about uh Axe calling to yeah. them. But see, the thing is like it's fun to it's fun to kind of like puzzle piece this all out, but then it also cheapens the story yeah. if everything is an Elvis conspiracy. But I mean I, I do kind of like Grace shaking her head. <laughs> I'm with you, and I also resent the idea that the Elmist is, like, helping them win. But I like the idea that, like, a few of these manipulations that were not directly taking agency away from them, like getting to hear Axe's thought speak cry, like, you know, the signal mm-hmm. boost to Axe's thought speak cry, or, like, you know, the infestation of Jake by that specific yerk. That feels like it, that kind of thing doesn't feel like it cheapens it as much for me. I don't right. know. Right. I mean, it's nice when it explains plot holes. Yeah. But I also... Don't let God figure so does he <laughs> right. does things. But that I mean, the thing that I really like about that is there's not something special about Jake necessarily, but mm-hmm. the, there was something special about Temrash. And yeah. so it's like Jake's misfortune that <laughs> Kryak is now focused on him specifically. Yeah, right? and it's also because of his position as the leader of the Animorphs and the one who connects all the Animorphs. Like that's why he maybe uh, I don't I guess maybe Kryak probably didn't choose for his head to fall into the pool <laughs> like that. But that's why Cryak chose that moment to act, because infesting Jake in particular because of his position would be very valuable. Right. right. I guess, but like the fact that it gets personal, right? Right. It does relate to Jake's, it stems from Jake's position in the fight, but it's not because Jake is like individually such a right. special person or right. something. And it, I, I guess it feels, he's not like, I hate you Animorphs, right? <laughs> it's very much like, uh, it's, it's like a, it feels like a one-on-one thing to me. It does. Yeah. But it feels like, I don't know, I'm less inclined to interpret it as, like, Cryak really hates Jake, and more as, like, Cryak has plans for Jake. Like, uh, Cryak is trying to intimidate Jake. And that's sort of how the Animorphs see it, too. Like, or Marco brings it up, like, okay, so part of the reason we're saying yes to go going and defending the Iscort is because you've been having these dreams. Cryak plays the same long games the Elemis does. Maybe he was haunting your dreams so that we would go, and he doesn't want us to win. Mm. Ooh, I like this. Yeah. yeah. Do we want to talk about the very end for a second? Sure. What did you think of the somewhat downer ending to this book? I was really intrigued by it, and uh, sort of the implications for Jake and Cassie's relationship. Ah. Uh. Ooh, tell me more. Well, just do- Yeah, so describe what happens. So this is the ending- He's he's getting philosophical. He's dreaming. Marco's always saying you choose how to see the world, that you can look at what's funny and cool, or you can focus on all the things that aren't. So I tried to follow Marco's advice. I tried to turn my dreams to Cassie. But even looking into her eyes, I still saw that doomed howler falling. So there was a thing in one of the battles where they were very outclassed, where um, Jake basically had to choose between trying to save Cassie, which honestly he probably couldn't have like she was like surrounded by howlers she had like been she was in birdmorph and she'd been disabled and like it was 
It was bad. Um, he wanted to stay with her, but he decides instead to distract them. He's going to try yes. and get them to okay. chase him. He's going to make himself a target. I thought it was more like he he couldn't help Cassie either way. So it wasn't that he was distracting mm-hmm. the Howlers that were after Cassie, but he was going to make himself a target. He ends up leading one of the Howlers over the edge and just like making it fall the extremely long distance to the ground. They're on these really tall towers. And he acquires the Howler as they're going down. And it's sort of this weird, like, hanging out with this creature who I just sent to certain death, but he's not dead yet. And, and he does this cool thing um, that we were just recently talking about, where the Howlers make this horrible screaming noise that disables anyone who hears it. But before the Howler can scream, Jake puts it into the acquiring trance, yeah, which we talked about, like, maybe <laughs> aggressively acquiring something in a combat situation. Like ago, and it, yeah. it works surprisingly well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, and he realizes later when he morphs the Howler, he's like, oh, crap, they're all children. They only live for three years. They don't reproduce. They have this very simplistic understanding of the universe. They're sort of like dolphin-like in their playfulness. Yeah, they're like, oh, fun, destroy, destroy. They don't really understand that the creatures they're destroying are people who are going to be hurt by this. And that's why it's so effective when the Animorphs give them their memories, because they will then understand that other people are people. So once Jake realizes this, that like, oh, they're all children they don't understand, he's sort of haunted by this, oh, and I sent one of them to their deaths and had it like fall like miles to the surface. And, and while he was in that moment, right, he thinks maybe Cassie would have felt bad, but I don't. I just yeah. hated this guy. Yeah. And then he thinks at the end, he's like, it's hard to hate something for just doing what it was designed for. And that's an interesting, like, I was wondering as I read that, like, to what extent does he feel like hate is required for um, for fighting creatures like this in a combat situation? Is it like it's, you need to believe they're evil for it to be justified? You need to believe they're pure evil for it to be justified, even though, like, it's that they have to be pure evil, not just that their actions are horrible and therefore we have to take them out. Right. I mean, he does end up being like, even though I couldn't hate them for this, we still had to try to get Cryak to destroy them, but... It's such a weird moral dilemma to be in. I understand where he's coming from, and it is an indication of their empathy and compassion Mm -hmm. that Jake's reaction to this is that they didn't know what they were doing. They are, you know, short-lived. They're designed just for killing. They really don't understand this. They're just, essentially, they're just children. Mm -hmm. And his reaction is just to be so horrified that this, that they're trying to kill them. To the extent that he hesitates for a little while before the final battle. And, you know, eventually he kind of says, all right, we, we just have to do this. But I sometimes feel that these books are selective in their consideration of the effects of the actions that the Inwars are taking. Mm-hmm. Go on. Because another creature that was designed for a single purpose that is short-lived and essentially childlike, the hork and he does not have these kind of dreams about slaughtering hork that also don't have a choice in what they're doing. And I'm not saying that he should suddenly, you know, not care about the Howlers. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm mm-hmm. saying is it's very weird that this is what his focus is on and that he has these dreams of the Howler falling and that for some reason it's that one Howler that mm-hmm. was sent to this world specifically to destroy him that almost killed his girlfriend that is haunting his dreams and not the tens of hork that he has mercilessly slaughtered in the past 25 books. Yeah, that's a thing that really hasn't been enough reckoning with. Like, I don't think it's weird that he has these thoughts here. Like, I think it makes sense that that would give you pause and make you think, and then he still decides he has to do it. 
But we've talked before, like, they just don't seem to grapple with this thing where they're killing innocent non-combatants every time they fight a controller. Yeah, well, I wonder, I mean, I agree that it's inconsistent, and I'd like to think more about the parallel between the Howlers and the Hork-Bajir as, like, created childlike species that are, you know, some are sympathetic and some are not, or, like, you know, it comes up in this book. Um, But one of the other things that, before they know a little more about how the Howlers work... Cassie and Jake have that conversation mm-hmm. where Cassie's like, it just doesn't make sense. The howlers don't make sense. Mm-hmm. They don't kind of seem like a real species that they would be so full of this like mindless killing and kill, kill, kill. That's all they do. And they always win. And then like, they don't seem like animals, right? Mm-hmm. They don't seem like real things. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jake is kind of dismissive. He's just kind of like, yeah, or maybe they're just, like, really that bad. Maybe all Howlers are the same, and they're mm-hmm. bad, right? And or maybe they're not all that same, but probably the ones who are here are not nice ones. Why would Cryax send the nice ones? Right. Cassie is um, is bringing that empathy to bear without proof, right? Mm-hmm. And Jake is kind of like, no, you know what? This is a simple one, right? Like, I already have to deal with Yerks and Hork-Bajir <laughs> and stuff, but at least I know that the Howlers who slaughtered the Pemelites and all these other creatures, they're bad, mm-hmm. right? And so... What he's con- what he's being confronted with here is kind of like not just that um, it's not just about like oh well now that I know the howlers are like this it's also kind of like he was willing to take the easier path and say like okay you know until until they are proven innocent I'm just gonna assume these howlers are bad and maybe that's a little more what's haunting him right like this kind of like his ability to just say, hey, these other creatures must be evil, therefore I can kill them and not worry about it, right? Mm, yeah, and I like that. He's proven wrong. Yeah. He's proven wrong again, right? He's already had to deal with the Hork-Bajir stuff, and now he's like, this should be an easy one. We're fighting mm-hmm. Sauron and we're killing mm-hmm. orcs, right? But Because we yeah. see a couple of times in this book, like, Jake lagging behind Cassie in terms of empathy, and we talked about how empathy is such an important weapon really for the Animorphs or like tool for the Animorphs in this in this fight and part of the reason presumably why the Elemis sent them and Cassie is really at the forefront of like okay we are if we're gonna fight them we need to understand them and Jake really resists that for a while like at the beginning when they're in the escort marketplace and Cassie's like asking questions and trying to figure stuff out Jake's like we don't need to like write a paper on the escort we just need to find some place to to hide and Cassie's like I feel like we're not gonna do anything if we don't know what's going on here and she's like sounds kind of hurt and yeah um, and then in this conversation also he engages with her there was a really interesting line I didn't really care but Cassie's voice was a comforting distraction and then he's and later when he's like okay maybe they're not all evil but the ones that cry accent are not going to be like the soft cuddly ones and she fell silent. So I guess I'd stomped on her idealism anyway. At some level, I thought, good, we don't need a bunch of happy talk when we're up against howlers. But another level, I was just mad at the world and confused and scared. And we see all this stuff getting in the way of his empathy. Yeah. And then it f- he, like, finally gets there in the end, like, really sort of pushed into this space of empathy. But Cassie has a much better capacity for it under stress, and he is, like, yeah. resistant to and al- it. And also, it's just, like, the Anwar superpower is, like, proving that other people are people, right? Like, mm-hmm. he can become a howler to understand yeah. it. Yeah. But, like, yeah. you shouldn't have to do that, right? <laughs> right, and Cassie didn't have to do that to make the imaginative leap towards, like, maybe there's something else going on. Although I do think that that's one of the things that makes Jake the leader. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I agree that, you know, he shouldn't have to become a howler in order to be empathetic towards them, but also they are in the middle of the battle and Cassie, I love you, but like, that is not important right now. We can go think about the howlers when we're not <laughs> about to get killed by them. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're like lying in the darkness, like going to three sleep. seconds later, they break down the door and arrive and are <laughs> again, horribly outclassed. I, I agree that like, it's an important conversation to have, but I think sometimes it's good that Jake can say, thank you, Cassie. That is a valuable insight. But at the moment, it's right. part of the like, tragedy that. of his role in the group mm-hmm. is that he has to make these quick decisions. Mm-hmm. And it's not that he's wrong to make them. It's just that there are these the side effects that he has to right. kind of push empathy so away. This is kind of what I was thinking about with the ending is like, so Craig's been like haunting his dreams and Jake's like, whew. Now I'm not dreaming about crack anymore, but then kind of the bittersweet bit of the ending is like, but now I'm thinking about this one howler, mm-hmm. right? So let's give crack a little bit of credit. What if this is, this is part of his like contingency plan for if the howlers huh. got defeated in this situation is at the very least he can do a little bit of psychological damage to the leader of the animals. <laughs> so I really want to, tr- whether the war weighs more heavily on Jake from this point forward, and whether he's like, he struggled, like he's a very effective leader in this book, mm-hmm. but whether that burden starts to weigh him down more and more. And maybe that's mm-hmm. one of the things that Cryak sees that he can get out of this, mm-hmm. even if he loses the howlers, right? Like if he can put a strain on this guy who's making the tough calls, yeah. that might work out to his benefit in the future. Yeah. And I was also thinking about, I love Jake and Cassie in this book. I am such a sucker for their kiss scene. It's great. But there's like this thing where he is, he's trying to use her as this positive distraction and he can't totally. And you see it, it, it disturbs me that her voice is a comforting distraction to him in this scene where like she's trying to have a serious conversation and he's like, Oh, Cassie, she's so nice. Nice to listen to someone being nice. And I think. Ted, you've brought up, like, sort of a, a darker possibility of, like, he just, like, he wants to have this, like, girlfriend person in the group. And uh, I don't know that we see too much of that here. But ironically, I feel like at the end, it's a little bit, like, Cassie does in a lot of ways represent empathy. So if earlier in the book there was sort of some tension because Jake wasn't being empathetic enough, at the end when he's, like, what he wants to do is think about Cassie, but, like embracing this relationship with Cassie does mean embracing empathy. Like those are not opposite things. Mm. And so he's like looking into Cassie's eyes and his dreams and he's seeing what he did to this relatively innocent creature. I don't know. It's, it's mm. an interesting, like, right. That's of, interesting. It's yeah. like Cassie is like, he wants her to be a comforting distraction because if she's, if he takes her too seriously, he feels guilty. Yeah. Right. And like in the last book, when Marco thinks about Cassie, he thinks of her more like, I have a newfound respect for her ideas and like she takes things pretty seriously. It's like, I don't always see things the way she does, but like, at least I understand Mm -hmm. where she's coming from. It's like embracing difference there. And like Jake sort of can't do that without feeling guilty about, about that difference. Mm -hmm. But also, yeah, like Cassie is someone who has to be taken seriously. Like Mm -hmm. she's not a warm, comforting figure in the dark. She is someone with like intense integrity and empathy. And she's also the one who, gets the ball rolling in this book she's mm-hmm. like they're like why should we sign up for this it sounds yeah. like it doesn't matter to us at all and cassie's mm-hmm. like but what if we can win right she's like she's very much like let's think about the big picture eyes on the prize like mm-hmm. if we can help like why not trust the lms and see if we can do some do something amazing yeah mm-hmm. should we talk about that discussion that was 
Because that is, like, I, I'm surprised they don't bring up more, like, okay, but we're fighting here, and they really, really need us here, and why are we risking our lives on a different planet? No, they talk about that. Do they talk about that? Okay, maybe they talk about that enough. I was really intrigued by Axe's comment. He says, the only possible reason for doing this is if it helps us in some way, enlighten self-interest. Which was so interesting. Like, I guess that's not really, like, in opposition to anything we've gotten from the Andalites. Like, a big reason they're fighting this war against the Yerks is because, like, it's not just self-interest. They also want to save the other species. It's enlightened self-interest. They want to save themselves from eventually being taken over by the Yerks mm-hmm. and, you know, the galaxy they live in from being just the Yerk Empire. And is this, like, I don't know, maybe I'm maybe I'm making Axe too much his species. Is this the Andalite's philosophy? Is this just Axe's philosophy? I feel like it's the first time we've seen exactly this from him. Yeah, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It definitely feels a little bit, it feels like in this context, he's just, he's importing some, it doesn't feel like it's coming from him. Yeah. It feels like he's just, this is a big idea that we could, uh, this is like another lens, but mm-hmm. they don't really, mm-hmm. like, go into it. I mean, it seems like is the whole, like, Axe usually talks a lot about honor, and in this book he has this whole thing where he runs away, and yeah. that's a struggle for him, yeah. but that's not really enlightened self-interest, right? Like, no. honor demands we fight is, like, something that you would imagine an Andalite warrior say. Right, it's sort of the principle behind it, not the, like, okay, well, this will help us in the end. Like, it's very opposite. Right. It sounds more Marco-y, but, like, coming from Axe, it has this kind of, like, philosophical wise authority because Axe tends to dispense these mm-hmm. nuggets of Andalite wisdom. Right. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I did enjoy how easily Barco was goaded by Axe when Axe is like, why us? Why not seven battle-trained Andalite warriors? <laughs> this, of course, turned Marco around. Excuse me? Like, Andalites are better than we are? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Jake does have this moment of like, yeah, I try not to put my, my opinion forward too strongly. I, as the leader, I want to uh, like take uh, take in other people's opinions, but he brings up the thing where Cryak's been haunting his dreams. So when when he brings up that thing about Cryak haunting his dreams, the Animorphs all give him a glance, mm-hmm. and he doesn't identify who is who, right? So he said, the others looked at me, mm-hmm. like, and he looks at each of them, and he sees their faces, challenging, questioning, neutral skeptical and compassionate (laughs) so can we play guess that animorph uh okay compassionate is cassie Mm -hmm. hang on is neutral going to be axe or tobias because axe because tobias is in hawk form so he can't really do facial expressions oh interesting oh good point yeah well what if he does a little cock to the side questioning bird look (laughs) right because he would probably be more questioning Mm -hmm. um sorry what were the what were the adjectives Challenging, questioning, neutral, skeptical, compassionate. Okay, so skeptical is Marco, mm-hmm. challenging is Rachel, mm-hmm. questioning is Tobias, neutral is Axe. That, that that's have. my instinct, but you're right about the bird Tobias thing. and Axe might that's be switched. Yeah. Because Axe could be questioning, he has curiosity, but like the hawk face isn't going to show emotion. Right, right. I like that. While we're doing the whole group, I just, I loved the introductions of everyone. Oh, yes, please. Marco, my main man. Mm-hmm. What a phrase. Rachel, my cousin, the war goddess. Excellent. Cassie, the girl I care about more than I do myself. Which is a really strong statement. I think stronger than we've gotten from him before. Uh-huh. And also, like, in the one sense, it's really positive about the way he cares about Cassie. On the other hand, I mean, he did have a, a line like, I don't really know who I am. It's like the second line of the, the first chapter. It's like, my name is Jake. Who am I? Sometimes I'm not even sure. Like, I wonder mm-hmm. if there's a little bit of, like self-doubt in that statement of I care about Cassie more than myself. Yeah. We also see his like willingness to make a heroic sacrifice. Like, yes, he does think that about. he is yeah. not gonna make it later and embraces that. 
He says, Tobias, the friend I couldn't save from his own bizarre fate, which I was like, okay, Tobias is getting a little shortchanged in the like character description. There. <laughs> Wait, finish. <laughs> I know. And then I got to Axe. An Andalite. An alien. Come on, Jake. (laughs) Jake, it's so unacceptable. (laughs) It's been, like, 22 books plus some extra books. He's your MVP. (laughs) He saves your asses all the time. He's a super capable warrior. Um, Eric is the MVP of this book, but yeah. Okay, we'll talk about that. But also, it's the uh, five Animorphs and Axe. Same fallacy here again. Yeah. An Andalite, an alien, like all you're seeing. I get that you have to convey that he is an alien, but you could add something. Not just leave him at his species. Come on. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. We also get the uh, a description of all of the Animorphs leading up to the uh, the kiss at the end when Jake is reunited with everyone, which is really great. Do you want to read it? Uh, sure. Right. So, so Jake, after he acquires the Howler... You know, at the last minute, he morphs back into Peregrine Falcon before the Howler splats on the swampy surface of the Squirt planet. And Jake goes back to the tall building, but he has no idea where people are. Tobias finds him, right? Mm -hmm. Tobias is out scouting. And Jake is like, oh my god, how are we? What's, you know, is everyone... And Tobias is like, yeah, big Jake, everyone's alive. It's great. You know, we all hid inside a hologram. And they go back. And uh, when he goes inside, Jake thinks, I thought I was past the emotion. I thought I was over that feeling of hollowness I'd felt, imagining them all gone. But then there they were. Rachel scowling. Marco looking down at the floor, withdrawn. Axe off by himself, still no doubt blaming himself. Eric with his hologram turned off, an unemotional android face. And Cassie. Prince Jake, Axe cried, the first to see me. Cassie was on her feet and running toward me, and I was running to her. And I wasn't past any emotion. I was exploding with emotion. Cassie jumped into my arms, and I wrapped her up tight, and before I knew it, I was kissing her on the lips, and she was kissing me back. It's about time, Rachel grumbled. (laughs) I love that reaction. So many thoughts about this. One is, it's about time Rachel grumbled. Makes me think that she has already had kisses. Maybe. I hope. Maybe. I like this theory. (laughs) Also, what a good reaction. Either that or Rachel's just being hypocritical. Or impatient, because Tobias is always a bird, and she can't kiss him. <laughs> yeah, what if it's, it's just dropping a hint for Tobias? <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah. someone you know gets engaged, and you, like, nudge your significant other, and you're like, they've only been going out for two years. <laughs> I, I also I also love that, and this is a great moment, but then immediately afterward, Marco holds out his arms and says, what, no kiss for me? Okay, but I love that. He definitely wants a kiss. Uh-huh. Yes. I have so many feelings on this read-through about, like, Marco using clowning to disguise how he has had a crush on Jake forever. Okay, go on. Um, yeah. <laughs> we had the we had that great email in book 16 where he's, like, pretending to be Cassie and declaring his love for Jake. Mm-hmm. And come on, it was just sincere. And, uh, and now he sees Jake, who they all thought was dead. Like, mm-hmm. that was what their reactions were. Jake was missing. They thought he was gone. Mm-hmm. He's, like, looking at the floor, feeling things. Jake comes back, runs into Cassie's arms, and Marco puts a joke on it. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it's so sweet. And we have all of these cute Cassie and Jake moments leading up to this, right? Like, when they first get to the Squirt Planet and Rachel's complaining about them, Cassie and Jake look at each other and are like, <laughs> oh, Rachel. <laughs> There's the really nice thing when Jake... Oh, Jake was passed out from their first battle where it was just one Howler and they were completely outclassed. Mm -hmm. And he is having this dream of the Howlers destroying Cassie, which Cryak is in the dream, so I'm pretty sure it was an intentional, like, let's intimidate Jake dream. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wakes up, like, 
screaming like, Cassie, look out. And then she's not visible. And it turns out she's like standing behind him and she comes up and puts her palm on his cheek and, and it made him want to cry. And, uh, and then later when they're debating, like, Eric didn't help. Eric did help all this stuff. And he's like, I just, I held on to Cassie's hand. I didn't want to get into this. I wanted to hold on to a moment of feeling glad to be alive, glad to feel Cassie's concern. Mm-hmm. And I sighed, squeezed her fingers and pushed her hand away because they're in the middle of a fight. Oh. Yeah. And then this moment where he has to leave her when she has been shot down by the howlers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, I couldn't leave her. She was two days losing too much blood, sinking too fast to finish to morphing, but he doesn't have a choice. I flapped away, feeling like my heart was being ripped from my body. And he's like, have to help the others. It's my duty. Can't help Cassie anymore. And it's just, it's really rough. Yeah. But like, even, even though it's cute, again, that's like the problem with the way Jake sees Cassie. Because he's like, he's basically letting her stand in for his emotional and empathetic side, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, she's my heart. So like, I have to leave it behind in order to win. You know, like, wow, yeah. she's her own person, right? You know, yes, like, yes. like it's, it's great that he... I don't know. You can see it We've in a positive seen him, way, like, but outsourcing it's, the emotional it's, exactly. He's out, he's outsourcing intelligence it, to Cassie, and yeah. he's not taking responsibility for dealing with these things mm-hmm. himself. There were also a couple of interesting things where Cassie surprises Jake with her, like not just being mm-hmm. an empathetic saint all the time. <laughs> like they've just you know met up with Guide. Offworlders, of course. The city of beauty is temporary home to many, many offworlders. Probably drawn here by the charm of its residents, Cassie said dryly. It made me <laughs> smile. I thought Cassie could like anyone. Evidently, even she had limits. Yeah, it's really cute. And then later, Cassie's, like, conjecturing that the Elemist is playing a deeper game. He's fighting a battle for entire species, entire planets. We're just pawns. That was more cynicism than I was used to hearing from Cassie. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I feel like, I mean, on the one hand, people that you care about will constantly surprise you. But, like, it also, he's consistently surprised when she's not just... Sweetness and light. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. She didn't like the helmet crowns either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wasn't there for as much of that. Good point. I did like um, the the escort are groveling in this book. <laughs> <laughs> Do they grovel as well as Marco, though? They grovel in their own way. <laughs> the way it is customary for their own species. I like how when um, Guide is begging for his life, he's like, no, 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 from the Howlers. He's like, no, 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 not me. I'm just, I'm just an innocent escort guide. By the way, I would love to buy your memories of this event. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Can't turn it off. So I had a bunch of thoughts about Marco. Poor Marco in this. Great. He gets, like, eviscerated twice. There's, <laughs> like... The first time it is a bloody hole you could have pushed a Coke can through appeared in Marco's back. And then later, uh, the howler spun and nailed Marco with a fist. Not till he pulled back did I realize that fist had held a knife. The handle now protruded from Marco's stomach. He stared at it, disbelieving. Of course he did. It's like, how many times am I going to get, like, gutted in one book? He's always getting gutted in his gorilla morph. Then Jake guts him metaphorically by kissing Cassie in front of him. So, but Marco has this great moment where he saves Axe's life. Yeah, right? so he they're, does. So they're morphing flies to escape the howlers, but Axe is uh, slow on the draw. I guess because Axe was, like, trying to make up for having run away or Axe something. was refusing to morph. It was yeah. bad. Right, right, right. But so Jake is kind of like, oh, no, the howlers have busted it. Eric was trying to block the door, but now the howlers are here. Axe isn't isn't fly enough to escape. He's helpless, <laughs> trapped in mid-morph. I'm sorry. He isn't fly enough to escape was just a really great statement. And then Jake's like, there's nothing we can do. And Marco's like, 
hey, howlers, you guys suck. Crack some more out. Like, a you huge know. walking, talking pimple. Right. <laughs> and yeah. it works because <laughs> the howlers are intelligent. Crack is programmed to understand English. <laughs> yep. And they are very susceptible to psychological trickery. <laughs> and Marco's the first one to figure that out. And yeah. he manages to save Axe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Marco's sense of humor is uh, is interestingly positioned in this in this book. When uh, Marco's talking to the Elemist, the Elemist is being all serious. He's like, "When the first dinosaurs walked the earth, we had become much as I am today. You become a girl with braces." Marco said, so "He's taken on this appearance." And the uh, and the Elemist is like, "The Andalites could do with some of the human sense of humor," <laughs> which Axe looks all awkward and annoyed. And if the Yorks had any sense of humor at all, they wouldn't be the scourge mm-hmm. they are, which is like quite the statement. And then Marco looked more abashed than proud, like he clearly didn't mean to do it. Um, it's just like instinct for him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his sense of humor is posited as like really important, which maybe is just like a foreshadowing of like the importance of like their humanness, like their memories and their lives and like in changing the howlers. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Sense of humor. Same in the galaxy. But like, even so he does, he does crack a joke to save Axe, right? But then like before mm-hmm. that, when the howlers are bursting in after that first really bad battle, mm-hmm. um, um, so Jake is like, it's them howlers. Um, I felt like I was choking on my own heart. Like it was beating so hard, so fast that it filled me up, leaving no room for anything but small gasping breaths. We were going to die. I heard moans of terror. Some were coming from me, just these subhuman animal moans of fear. Morph, I yelled, choking out the word. They're going to kill us, Marco cried. So like in this moment, mm-hmm. right, there's no joke, right? Like Marco is just presumably just as panicked as Jake. And mm-hmm. it, it struck me that like, I feel like we've seen this from Marco yeah. a couple of times, yeah. this like being really close to death and then kind of losing his sense of humor type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it can be kind of scared of him. Marco also has a couple of good summary lines. <laughs> I really appreciated at the end, the Elemist uh, is the, kind of congratulating them on on uh, a job well done. Elma says, you did well. Did well? Did well? Marco <laughs> echoed. We kicked butt on the meanest gang in the galaxy, whooped Cryak the big nasty, saved the Iskort, which I'm still not sure was a good thing, and planted a little sensitivity time bomb in the Howlers, and that's it. Job well done, and oh, by the way, here's your insides to look at again as we zip through Inside Out World. <laughs> What would you like? The elements asked reasonably. I don't know. How about a reward or something? <laughs> yeah, they should have followed that thread more because the elements yeah. is like, why don't I just explain some things to you? <laughs> and they're like, no, no, no reward, please. I I liked this is not a particularly significant thing, but so they're all sitting there watching the Lion King at the beginning before the Elvis shows up. And Marco knows that he's sitting in the row in front of Jake. And so he is twitching his ears in time to the music. <laughs> I didn't want to smile, but it was just so idiotic it was funny. Marco naturally was hoping I'd snort or giggle so he could turn around and shush me full of righteous indignation. <laughs> I really like their friendship dynamic and Marco's uh, need for attention. I also like that Marco does not like the Elmist either. After mm, the Elmist mm-hmm. leaves at the end, he says, that does it. We're never inviting him over again. <laughs> Good point, Marco. Well done. <laughs> so he, he had a really not great line. With uh, when the whole group was talking about, there was like a lot of tension. They're talking about whether they should go save the escort, and uh, Cassie's saying like, "Yeah, Marco, you and Axe fight. That's sensible." Okay, then Marco said with a leer, "Forget me and Axe. You and Rachel, both wearing bikinis." Rachel calmly stuck out her arm and grabbed a handful of Marco's hair. What was that you said? I must not have heard correctly, Marco says. I refuse to answer on the grounds that you may tend to snatch me bald. Which is a great line, but also stop being sexist. Especially towards Cassie. Come on. Rachel could take it. 
That's not really cool. But, you know, he and Rachel have this bit. Don't pull Cassie into it. There's also a a similar thing after the kiss uh, where Jake and Cassie have just kissed. And, you know, poor Marco, his boyfriend is in love with someone else. I no know. kiss for me. And he says, I guess I'll have to turn to Rachel. And he went for her, arms out, lips puckered. Gee, Marco, says Rachel, what do you think the odds are I'll kiss you? Slim, none, or I'll break both your arms. Which was the second time that Rachel has reacted to someone coming on to her with violence. Oh my gosh, I love it. <laughs> and while I do not approve of violence, and of course violence is never funny, it's also a little bit funny when Rachel's <laughs> reaction to that is, I'll break both your arms, and then earlier some boy is trying to like hold her hand in the dark during The Lion King, and Jake says, I think Rachel's going to break one of his fingers. And then a second later, there's like a yelp well, of the great you have thing to describe was, it, her yeah. expression. Oh, yeah. Rachel had a kind of dreamy look on her face. You'd have thought she was enjoying the show. Only I noticed the guy sitting next to her was trying to hold her hand. And that dream Dreamy look was Rachel wondering which of the guy's fingers she should break. <laughs> the music is swelling and like, and Jake hears like, "Ow, you almost broke my finger!" And then, the, and then everything stops, and all he can hear is Rachel saying, "Almost, reach over here again, and I'll." <laughs> but like, I don't know. That just makes as much as it is a bit between Marco and Rachel. Like, she's yeah. got guys hassling her all the time, and yeah. so like the fact that Marco's doing it, quote unquote, just for fun, is yeah. not good. No, it's not good. It's, yes, I have very mixed feelings about that because I do really enjoy the banter, but it's also rooted in, like, real problems in Rachel's life and not real problems in Marco's life. Mm -hmm. Right. And, I mean, it's sort of like, oh, you know, getting hassled by the guys at school is, like, the least of Rachel's concerns. But still. Doesn't make it great. It doesn't make it great. Yeah, and also, like, she's got enough on her plate right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe let her have one fewer concern when she's hanging out with her friends. With, like, normal teenagers who shouldn't be. Yeah. Poor Rachel. Yeah. Violence is not funny, but a stifled yelp of pain coming from Ferrara's packet to the right is... That was pretty funny. Very funny. There was one... Another good uh, Rachel and Marco moment. So it's like one of their... uh, We have no idea what we're doing here. How can we possibly win? And Eric suggests, maybe the elephants will reprogram me so I can cause violence. And Marco groaned, well, it's official. The situation is hopeless. When Eric starts talking that way, it's because we're beat. Beat this, Rachel said rudely. <laughs> so I'm imagining the uh, hand gesture that comes along with saying this. <laughs> that also reminds me, um, not a Rachel moment, but um, when the Elemist shows up uh, and and explains to them what they want to do, Cassie's like, he doesn't mean us, right? He doesn't mean he's going to send us. And the Elemist said nothing. Cassie said a word I've never heard her yep, use before. Yep. <laughs> That's one of my favorite middle grade tropes. Yes. It's so funny. And seeing it from Cassie is just extra Mm -hmm. good. Yeah, no, I was just thinking more about Rachel and, like, so she has this, like, very serious warrior life Mm -hmm. where she does not use her own body and, like, fights these aliens and, like, is the warrior of the group. And then when she is in her own body, she doesn't get taken seriously. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't seem to have, she doesn't seem to have issues with her own body. Mm -hmm. Like, she, she doesn't seem to, like, resent that. But it's really unfortunate that the world has not learned the lesson that Jake says he's learned, you know, disregarding appearances. And, you know, it's great that she is tough enough to rebuff all these advances and seem like maybe she's not that bothered. But, like, that is not the case for everyone. And Mm -hmm. she shouldn't have to do that. Should we talk about... Eric is really interesting in the book. He doesn't come into it a lot. Yeah, we we should definitely talk about about Eric. Um, Yeah, that thing where he suggests that like maybe the elements could reprogram me is like that is a big thing well it's what's so fascinating is the way that he because it's sort of like 
a simple idea. The Chi are nonviolent. They're programmed to not be violent. And uh-huh. you get to see all of the like weird loopholes and edge cases that come up with that, right? Yeah. Because so first of all, just because he's programmed to not be physically violent and he can't disobey this like law of robotics doesn't mean he doesn't hate the howlers and really wish he could destroy them, mm-hmm. right? So he's like full yeah. of this emotion that can go nowhere. And and at the same time when they're like, "Okay, Eric, could you just like bust through this wall um, mm-hmm. to cause a distraction? And he's like, no, because I know the howlers are out there and I yeah. might hurt them. So I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right? But he's able to kind of give the Animorphs tactical advice, mm-hmm. but not directly coach them on how to hurt the howlers. So like, <laughs> where does his helping them cross the line from something that he's allowed to do versus not? It's really unclear. Yeah. Well, and not just that, but he can't give them the insights that he's gotten from the like download of memories right he knows that they're essentially children and oh. he doesn't tell oh no no no! that's not because he can't that's because he wants that's what i was to gonna keep say fighting them. yeah he so he doesn't he knows that and he doesn't tell the animals but that's not to help them that's not but he could have prevented that the howlers like... from being hurt by oh he, he's not like forced to I make the argument yeah, yeah, yeah. right right and so yeah. he like doesn't tell the animals this information that would Make them perhaps not fight them. Yeah, okay, yeah. Because he hates the howler so much yeah. that he doesn't want to provide anything that would be a sympathetic. Right. So it's like, is it the difference yeah. between action and inaction? Right. Or is it like he can, if it's a choice between the animorphs being harmed or the howlers being harmed, is he allowed to pick sides? Like, mm-hmm. it's really interesting. But even so, like, he, he can't, I think he can't act directly. That seems to be right, mm-hmm. or it's it's they says something like a physical prohibition on violence yeah. or like causing harm. The thing where you said he couldn't directly give them tactical advice is that true? I think that was Jake's. That's at least Jake's interpretation I don't of it. Remember that? Because I remember when when they are uh, the first time the howler attacks and it, mm-hmm. things are going really bad. Eric is giving them advice like get out of the way, get out of the way, get out of the way, oh, but not yeah. like here's how you fight back. And so Jake thinks at some point, even Eric, he can't even really help us fight them. Oh, um, but yeah, okay. I don't. Maybe maybe that's more Jake's interpretation than anything else. No, but I can see that. So one quick note is they use Eric's holograms very effectively, like mm-hmm. creating crowds of escort to hide in, and basically, you know, the Howlers can't see through the hologram. Um, it it strikes me that this is very um, appropriate. Like, it makes sense that the Animorphs have this capability fighting the Howlers because they need everything they can get. But, like, why don't they just use Eric to create a hologram that allows them to get into the Yerk pool all the time and hang out Mm. invisibly and, like, learn all the intelligence they need? Or, like, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess Mm -hmm. Eric wouldn't agree to a plan if it involved, like, assassinating Visser 3 or something. Mm -hmm. Maybe. If he knows. Although, he probably would. He couldn't assassinate Visser 3, and maybe he couldn't directly give them the order to, like, pull the trigger. But he's well, right, so here with helping like, them defeat the Howlers, so... It, it seems like they haven't tested the limits of yeah. Eric's ability mm-hmm. to get them uh, into places using holograms. And That's so, definitely like, true. And, like, and we also just learned that Chi can now, like, impersonate the Animorphs for days at a time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, like, I feel like they haven't leveraged this... There's some untapped potential. Enough. Yeah. It's Marco's interpretation of Eric that you oh. were saying. And Marco's really down on Eric mm-hmm. throughout this whole book. Marco's really down on Eric, and Rachel is really appreciative of Eric, which is mm-hmm. interesting. Which kind of makes some sense to me, because 
Marco is very, very practical to the point where he can't get on board with like, yeah, prohibition against violence is a mm-hmm. good thing because he is willing to sacrifice his principles in situations where like, mm-hmm. it's absolutely necessary. Whereas Rachel is a very protective person and maybe Eric has fallen under this umbrella and now she's going to protect him. Yeah. I also think that Rachel uh, is more sympathetic to people who aren't warriors mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yes. And Marco surprisingly isn't, right? He gets right. much more frustrated with Cassie, for example. And Rachel's like, no, I'm the warrior. Cassie is the like philosopher. Maybe because Marco isn't as much of a warrior Mm -hmm. and he has to do these things and he doesn't understand why other people are able to choose not to or like able to stand on principle when he feels like he can't. And from a tactical perspective, he's like, everyone should be fighting. And then Mm -hmm. if we all were like just as good as fighting at Rachel, we would be much better than we are. And she's like, no, Mm -hmm. you know, I have that. It's interesting. I felt like Rachel maybe wasn't Eric's biggest fan, but she's protective of him as an insider because it's guide is like, and the Android. And Rachel's (laughs) like, like, he has a name. He has a name. Eric. I'm <laughs> like, awesome. This is just Rachel being like... I love it. This court are annoying, and I will not hear them talk about <laughs> my Android acquaintance. That way. <laughs> the thing I found really interesting about Eric, though, was how much emotion he showed in this. Because mm. So I talked fairly recently about how a lot of times when aliens show up in the Animorphs, like, if they are generally allies, they're often, like, very wise and, like... Don't to the point of like not having needs of their own or whatever, and the Chi are a little bit like that. Um, the Iscourt are not like that, which was kind of nice, uh, which I'd like to talk about more. But also, Eric, you see so much like when he first shows up in the barn is like, Yes, I will go with you and defeat the Howlers. Like, Jake feels the suppressed rage coming off of him, even though he's like, He's an yeah. android, that should be impossible. Yeah. And when the Howler first shows up, Eric's yeah. hologram starts flickering in and out, which he has had thousands of years of practice at that thing. Mm-hmm. Like, he has, presumably that almost never happens on Earth, and he's not afraid, he is angry. Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't tell the Animorphs that the Howlers are children, even though he knows it would, because he knows it would change yeah. what they would do. Also, the the way that memories come into play, mm. um, it's like a big theme in this book, and is also a big um, continuation of... Eric's story in book 10 Mm because the whole thing at the Mm -hmm. end of 10 was Marco can forget the horrors of violence but Eric can't and then they they take that times a hundred in this book because their first step in understanding the Howlers is to make Eric download all of the Howler memories that they can get which before they do this they don't ask the question but it turns out Eric can't then get the memories erased Mm -hmm. so so he's, he's like I have absorbed the available Howler memories they are not not pleasant viewing Right. But it's just like, he's just got millennia of genocide in his head now. And as we've learned, the reason he went back to being nonviolent is because it's just so horrifying for an android to not be able to forget this kind of violent stuff. But apparently he hated the Howlers enough, even before getting their memories, that he was willing to get their memories if it would let him fight them better. Yeah. He's willing to do that to himself in order to destroy them better because he hates them so much. Not fight them better. Oh. (laughs) Give information that will let the Animorphs fight the better. Yeah, which I think is is interesting because that's one of the big sort of moral quandaries of this book mm-hmm. is what do you do with a species devoted to war, Jake says. What do you do once you've created an awesome weapon and turned it loose? And there he's talking about what would have happened 
to the chi if the Pemelites had removed their... Which is kind of insulting. One, it's insulting. It's also, I find it such an interesting discussion because he says, you know, the chi could have been turned loose. They could have destroyed the howlers, right? If you turned off the, like, pacifist part of their programming, Mm -hmm. they what we've seen happen before is the result was terrifying. He annihilated a Yurk force, right? Mm -hmm. And Marco says... What right did Eric have to cling to his nonviolence in a universe where the Howlers annihilated entire species on orders from an evil force? How do you stand on the sidelines when evil is running amok? And then he seems to kind of come to the conclusion through his interactions with the Howlers that these species, there, there is a way around that programming and that, you know, maybe we can use these insights that I've now gotten about the Chi to fight the Howlers. But that's actually a really important question. How do you stand on the sidelines when evil is running amok? And it's the same problem I had with the Chi in Mm -hmm. book 10, which is you, by being a pacifist, it's not a neutral decision, right? Yeah. You are, if you are not fighting against evil, you are, if you're not actively fighting against evil, you are on its side. It is, it is not neutral. And for them to say, well, we're helping in the way that we can, but we're not actively fighting is a cowardly and, and morally negative decision. And I think that they don't spend enough time on that with yeah. Eric in this book and, and with Eric in general, like this discussion just kind of gets sidelined in, in favor of talking about the howlers, which is the immediate problem. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. But I do actually think that that's a really interesting uh, discussion that I kind of hope they come back to. And it's something we've seen before, or we've talked about before, like when Elfengor realized he had a duty to go back and fight, mm-hmm. um, the books do seem to be saying, when evil is running amok, you have a duty to fight it. Mm-hmm. Like you, you have a moral responsibility to be in the war, even if by being in the war you have to do things that are morally questionable. Or do damage yeah. to yourself by inflicting violence on people. Right. I mean, it is... It is unfortunate to Eric that he cannot forget the violence that he has inflicted. Mm -hmm. However, by being a neutral bystander and allowing the Yerks to take over, he is essentially the cause of whatever violence they inflict because he could stop it and he is choosing not to. And, you know, choosing, he's programmed that way. We happen to know there's a way, but he chose to go back to the programming. And I find that incredible incredibly questionable as a decision and I think it's weird that we don't we don't talk especially in a book and I know that this is because we are now 20 years on from these books but like if you're gonna bring up the Nazis Mm -hmm. and then say you can't stand on the sidelines in my head those two things are very closely related because we are in a very different political environment now and you cannot stand on the sidelines when the Nazis are trying to take over again but like it just we just kind of skate by it yeah talk about other things Well, yeah, I wonder, I think it's really interesting that Eric comes off as kind of hypocritical in this book in a way that sort of like Cassie didn't in 19. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like you have this kind of like, Cassie's willing to sacrifice so much, whereas like Eric seems a little more like he's a a little high and mighty about his philosophy. Like the Pemelites were so peaceful and we need to like honor their memory and also Mm -hmm. like somehow having to fight makes you bad. Right. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like this philosophy behind what the, what the Chi are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a really good point. Like, does he have a duty to get involved? And then like, but then it's also the question is, it's definitely true that the Chi can kill every controller on earth. Mm-hmm. Like it seems like they have that capability 
to, to if that was the plan, just like exterminate sure. all of the, the Yerks on Earth. Mm-hmm. But then do they have a duty to resolve the conflict in a less violent way if they can, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do they have a duty to become the benevolent rulers of Earth <laughs> mm-hmm. in order to stop the Yerks? Is that better? Like, I, it's, it's an, they, we, don't, we don't get into that at all, but like, where does their duty, do they have duty commensurate with their power? Right. And then like, what are the, what are the strictures on what they do? Like, should they try and become as powerful as Kryak and control everything because they think that being peaceful is the way to go? No, but I think they ha- I think we all have duty commensurate with our own power. Yeah, but do they have duty to try to grow their power? So one of the things that I think the books are saying for why the Chi don't do this is a little weird, and it's in here. It's the, like, the Chi could have saved them, and then when the Chi had destroyed the Howlers, what would they do next? What do you do with a species devoted to war? Which is weird, because I feel like they could destroy the Howlers and then not just go on fighting wars. But there is this idea we've run into time and time again in this series that, like, once you become a killer, you can't go back. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's that simplistic yeah. orc thing. thing. Like, yeah. Now that they've gotten the taste for bloodlust, then... Yeah. Like, if the Chi did this, their power would somehow be ungovernable. They wouldn't right. be able to live peacefully. They would be a danger to, like, the galaxy. Which I don't think is really true. But I do think what Ted brings up is really interesting, this idea of, like, if they have a duty to... Like, if they feel like their long perspective could help them rule Earth peacefully... Should they do that? At what point are they then just enslaving humans by like keeping them from hurting each other? Right. Like, yeah, if being a yerk, if being a parasite is inherently wrong, maybe also exterminating the yerks is inherently wrong. If you have so much, if you have so much power over them, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, yeah, because there's also this question of like, I feel like the an unstated piece of why the books don't question more the animorphs fighting the horkajerk controllers, for example, mm-hmm. is that they are relatively evenly matched and fighting for their survival in a battle, fighting for the you know freedom of their species. And that seems to be an unstated, okay, well, it was a combatant situation. It's like combat situation. We had mm-hmm. to do that. And it wouldn't be so much a combat situation when you just have this unstoppable android force. And there's the books seem to be implying that there's something... That's like unjust war. I don't, they're not stating that outright, and so it's it's hard to really engage with them on that point, but I feel like that's a piece of their thing. Yeah, I'm I not saying they're right about it. I was going to say, I think, but, I think you're correct that that's what the books are saying. I just disagree with it. Yeah. I, you know, it's the same like, no, destroy the jacuzzi tub full of Yorks. <laughs> just pull the plug. That's They are the enemy combatants, and I think if you have the chi, then the argument that is like, we're not sure we can rein them in. All right, well, that feels, three of that them feels fake to me. Not change their programming <laughs> and have a button to blow up yeah. the rest of them. That does, like, you have, this is just... Do they have the duty to destroy themselves entirely in order to keep the Yerks from infesting humans? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what you would say to Eric if you were, if Grey was sitting down to try and persuade Eric to do this. I think yeah. what she would say is, Eric, kill all the Yerks and then blow yourself up if you're going to feel bad about it, right? That's a better outcome than mm-hmm. letting the Yerks win, right? Yeah. Like, he can choose how long he suffers, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I have a solution for you, buddy. And, like, he's been around for thousands of years, right? He was a slave in the pyramids. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that is a lot of years of just not doing anything about injustice. Mm-hmm. And now there is an invading force on this world that you have made your own. And you have an option to do something about it. And there is not a 
there is a morally good or morally bad choice and you are choosing to take neither of those and mm-hmm. like therefore I think you are on the, the morally bad choice. Right. I don't know. And like well but what about so do you think the LMS is better than the Chi? <laughs> he's doing what he can without he's you know. so powerful and his enemies are so jacked that he can't bring his power to bear directly but he can like do, play this little chess game. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point. And I do think that the nice thing about this book is it provides some context for why the Elmist had these like arbitrary rules that kept being like mentioned and never discussed, which was annoying the crap out of me. And now it's like, okay, so the, the thing is, if he, the reason he can't step outside of these specific bounds is it will restart a war that will destroy, right, you know, right. sentient species and sons and whatever. So it did give me a slightly more sympathy for him. I want to, I don't know. I feel like it's not as clear cut with the Chi. I feel like you're right. They've lived on earth for thousands of years. That's a lot of ignoring injustice, but like they will never be humans. They could, they could have potentially become more a part of human society, but like at what point is them imposing their view of justice on humanity? Just imperialism, just colonialism. Yeah. Like, right. Yeah. What if they colonize humans just to like make a totally dog centric society? Right? Like you invented dogs yeah. or we invented dogs. That's awesome. And now you're going to like just worship dogs. Yeah. But if they're like, okay, this slavery is bad. Let's interfere with this society to get rid of slavery. Mm-hmm. How do you interfere without overturning the society? Like how do you? Yeah. It's a really good point. And I think really it's much more complicated than that. And at this, historically. Yes. And now at this point, it's a battle between different species they could get involved. I think it's still a complicated question, especially because the Yurks are not immediately killing the humans, so a less violent long-term strategy could be effective, mm-hmm. though it seems like they're not pursuing that as hard as they could either. Right. So it's, yeah. I just really like how this book takes all of these threads and puts them together. It's yeah. like a really satisfying mm-hmm. book thematically for that reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I love, we haven't really talked about Jake's leadership in mm-hmm. like a lot of detail, but I just wanted to call out, like, I love that... He has a lot of fear and distress and worry and indecision, but what we see him actually doing is being a leader. So mm-hmm. I feel like he's gotten, he's, he's like so good at filling his role at this point that like as weak as he feels, mm-hmm. he's doing the best that he can for the group and helping them tactically, helping them strategically. In this book, he happens to be the one who has several big hero moments. He comes up with a plan himself to save things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great to see that Animorph's angst come through and mm-hmm. then not stop him from getting the job done. Mm-hmm. I really like the thing he said to Cryak at the end. Cryak says, look at you, all of you cowering. Are you frightened? I nodded. Yeah, I am, I admitted in a weak voice, but we won. And there's that yeah. contrast right mm-hmm. there. He's especially, I thought his leadership with Axe was really interesting because Mm. Axe has a moment in the first battle when everyone is morphing except him and um, because he's staying in his Andalite form, which is his battle morph, as the howlers do their like howling, paralyzing noise and he, his ears are bleeding and he runs away. And for him, that's like a personal failure. So he spends the rest of the book trying to atone for that. And Jake, a couple of times, really calls him out. There's one point where he kind of looks at him and says, you are not allowed to sacrifice yourself, yeah. no matter how heroic you think it would be. You are not allowed to die for this. And then later, he he asks for a volunteer for a very dangerous mission. And of course, Rachel's like, this. you know, raises he her hand his immediately, and, and he just shakes his head at her, and then Axe volunteers. And I love, Rachel made a little half smile and nodded imperceptibly, like she that. totally gets it. 
Um, and then he gives Axe this like dangerous mission mm-hmm. to allow him to regain oh, so his good. sense of honor. It's just a really great display of how Jake's leadership works yeah. and, and how well he understands his people. And I love that we got this view of Axe. We so rarely get intense character stuff from Axe in a mm-hmm. non-Axe book. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. He, he's often comic relief. He's often information. Sometimes there's like a couple interesting character lines, but this one he had like a real character struggle, like mm-hmm. with his what he saw as cowardice and like his identity was being threatened. Like Jake is telling him to morph. He says, "I ran once, not again. I am an Andalite warrior," and he's really struggling mm-hmm. with this. And like Jake, Jake describes it. It's like the Andalites are an essentially peaceful race. Interesting. But with a long warrior tradition, too. And uh, and he'd spent his entire life in the shadow of his brother, Elfingor, who was a great war hero. And yeah, it's just really... Mm-hmm. It's also a nice parallel to 18, where you get this really strong Axe-Jake dynamic yeah. from Axe's perspective. Yeah. yeah, there were several times when Jake said, if I'm your prince, do this thing. Not allowed to get yourself killed, Axe. <laughs> Yeah. And he doesn't do the don't call me prince thing. He's like, this wasn't going to be handled with a little joshing. It's this thing where he, you know, they have this bit, but he is willing to step into this prince role when he recognizes that it's what X needs. Mm -hmm. I really, I feel like we need to call out this escort thing. They, they're reconvening in this abandoned factory and guide says not abandoned. The worker guild refuses to come back to work here until the superstition and magic guild, amazing, certifies that the place is free of the spirits of fictional characters. Yes, oh my god. <laughs> what? I'm so glad you brought this up because it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, there's like apparently this belief that like fictional characters aren't quite like fictional, like they sort of exist and they can haunt a place and so. The simple folks believe fictional characters are at least partly real. It's like, and that's true. Spirits who wander the city, <laughs> infesting buildings and engaging in various destructive behaviors. And my note was like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I love that. The escort are amazing. So good. And that, you know, this, of course, was written by writers and Mm -hmm. (laughs) these writers proclaiming the partial existence. And it's just, it's so good because, like, the stakes have sort of never been higher, but Mm -hmm. it's in this, like, weird kind of, like, epic sci-fi struggle type thing and not this Mm -hmm. really personal struggle. But there are a lot of personal moments. And then it's just, like, so funny. The escort are so (laughs) ridiculous. And the fact that it's like, oh, yeah, we're doing this big epic thing to save these really annoying people, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I did want to mention that, uh, yeah, I had had this thing about, like, ah, the alien races that aren't opposed to them are always just kind of wise. And no, the escort were not. Mm -hmm. They were their own people. They were never made likable they they have sort of a you know the um the progression they have in book 11 with the jungle where rachel's like we're saving the rain this this is the rainforest this is what we're saving and at the end they're like oh this place is actually beautiful and amazing okay and this you know they're like we're saving the escort they're so annoying and they never come around to like oh but we love them they come around to like oh, they're valuable because they're a better way of living than the Yerks. Mm. And, I mean, originally they were, you know, let's save them because they're, you know, they they maybe have inherent value, but the Animorphs never come to appreciate it on an emotional yeah. level. And that was kind of nice. <laughs> Can you just tell me what an escort looks like? Oh, yes. Oh, Off the no. top of your head. Oh, my gosh. So they've got, okay. like, vulture heads. Mm-hmm. Um, their legs look like they are crawling backwards mm-hmm. while moving forwards. And then they have a, like, wheezing accordion-like diaphragm yep, in the center yep. of their bodies mm-hmm. that makes the Fran Drescher noises. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. 
And they have thoughts speak, which is yeah. interesting. Right. They have mouths, but they don't use them to speak. Oh, yeah. They just occasionally open their mouths, and you can see these, like, tiny, sharp blue teeth and a big blue tongue. <laughs> I just, I love the idea they're, like, gulping in air like mm-hmm. minnows. What if the blue tongue is the yurt? <gasps> uh, they have, their hand is uh, one very long tentacle finger, <laughs> and then two little claws. <laughs> Which makes them even more annoying, because they're always, like, pointing and poking. Oh, that's uh, funny. Should we describe the howlers a little bit? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. They're the howlers are awesome. Yeah. They're like such good. They're very aliens. humanoid, which like there and, are so many humanoid aliens. Right. But they're these like humanoid lava creatures. Mm-hmm. They have like a bow-legged, jaunty gait. Mm-hmm. They have they, two legs. They have two legs, which is you know notable. Axe yep. is always surprised about the two-legged nature of humans. Um, they carry like a bandolier full of weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, they have inbuilt wolverine claws. Yeah, that, like snap down, but can lift up. Um, they have their body is divided into two parts. Um, Jake says it looked like there was a bearing halfway up its body, as if the top half of the torso was on a living lazy Susan, hmm. which is just a really cool description. They and have robin's egg blue eyes. Which have, like, infrared vision and also the ability to see partially through skin, so they can yeah. target vital organs, and they can see, like, motion blur like, very effectively. Mm-hmm. They have skin that looks like uh, still-cooling lava. It's, like, black and cracked with lines of bright red visible underneath. Mm-hmm. Okay, so does Jake lose his Howler morph because it's Elmish shenanigans? The way that they've lost all the, the other morphs not. besides that the giant be great if he I hope we see that. the Howler morph again. I really love this description of the Howler. But he was fascinated by the morphing, fascinated and almost jealous if it's possible to read an expression on a face made of tar with eyes as empty as sky. It's just very poetic. Yeah. I had a note that I was not going to inflict my usual morphs are gross <laughs> nonsense on you guys. Even with the elastic veins? The whole time I was like, nope, they're doing morphing. Morphing is fine. Flesh is melting. I can deal with all of You're this. You're so brave. And then... <laughs> Jake morphs into the howler. Tell us about it, Gray. Uh, the morph continued. My skin began to erupt in pustules, blisters that formed all over my body, then burst and oozed out black glue. Fine. <laughs> I looked down oh and God. saw my stomach pinching like I was being cut in two. Just as the pinching looked as if it would go all the way and the top of my body would topple like a chopped tree, long, flexible threads, elastic blood veins, shot out, connecting the two halves of me, upper and lower. For a horrible moment, I could actually see the white bone of my human spine. The interlocking vertebrae melted and reformed as thick, steel-gray cylinders, each able to turn on its base. Then my center filled in, hiding the spine and the elastic veins and tendons. That's disgusting. That's so gross. The elastic veins are so cool. (laughs) Then I gave up on my non-inflicting. Other really horrible. So like the howler yell, the fact that it like drives people. It basically paralyzes you um, with pain. Mm -hmm. And the the, uh, Jake's theory about it is sort of like the smarter you are, the worse it is. And so when Axe is running away, he's like clutching his head and like his ears are bleeding. And he's Mm -hmm. running up a staircase with no railings that's like hundreds of feet above the ground. So it's really bad. Mm -hmm. It's just, yeah, really horrifying. I had one science corner thing. Is it about the DNA? Let's go to science corner. No. Swimming swimming in the blood. (laughs) (laughs) No, my science corner was Jake is in Peregrine Falcon Morph. Mm. He has just led this howler to jump off the side of the building. Down he fell, quickly achieving maximum falling velocity, which, in the gravity of the escort world, as it turned out, was less than 200 miles an hour. Okay, but are we saying that Jake's Peregrine Falcon speed is constant at 200 miles an hour? Because I'm pretty sure that's also dependent on gravity. 
Which seems like it's, I mean, it's really plausible that he can go faster than the falling howler, but still. Sure, but let's come on. It's science. I yeah. think this is a Jesu, not a Kesu. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Jake, yeah. yeah. It's really just a, it's like an end of chapter quip. Um, other random things. I liked how Tobias called Jake Big Jake and then Cryak called him Little Jake. Did you like how the escort used Jake as a unit of measurement? Oh, <gasps> what? Oh my no. gosh. Okay, hold on. I we have to look it. this up. You have to look so they're they're morphing birds because the howlers have figured out that they used bugs and know how to kill bugs with mm-hmm. bugs right now. It's another gross morph, but Jake just kind of like hand waves past it. He's like, "We were melting, morphing, flesh using, and shifting." Blah blah blah. <laughs> Guy, how high up are we? Perhaps five times your own height. Okay. <laughs> I did not pick up on that. That's amazing. <laughs> Unfortunately, the escort standards of construction do not allow us to go. They're about two stories above right. where they want to go, but the stories are inconsistently spaced from each other. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually know how close five times five two is to the, <laughs> to the actual length. I liked how the Elmas showed up in the middle of the circle of life and stopped the circle of life. It was very poetic. <laughs> That is very good. I didn't think about that at all. That's really funny. Yeah, they're at an assembly of the Lion King, which that's quite the assembly to be the, at. The show, the Broadway yes, show. Some of the performers have come to do like an afternoon performance at their school, which is, I guess maybe that happens. It does not. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, 90s references. 90s references. Um, there is the reference to the nanny. The oh, yeah. sound of the diaphragms sounds like Fran Drescher, the woman who plays the lead in The Nanny. No offense to her. Mm. Very funny. I was I'm pretty obs- sure offense to her. Yeah, I was obsessed with the nanny, so I really loved that reference. It's also it's such a good description. Mm-hmm. If you've ever mm-hmm. seen the nanny, yep. you know exactly yep. what this place is mm-hmm. like. Yeah, the heights of particularly tall buildings in the yeah. uh, world are described as the heights of the World Trade Center and the Sears Tower. Yeah, we had that the Howlers don't like to buy memories to watch on their VCRs. No, they do not. Also, uh, at one point, Jake is seeing trails like the once your mouse cursor leaves on the computer screen. <gasps> Whoa. Not a thing that happens anymore. Amazing. Wait, did you guys catch the other escalation in the Cassie and Jake relationship in this book? No. Because when Jake morphs a howler to check and see if any oh, of the memories were yeah. able to okay, get through, yes. he realizes that the memory of the kiss has made it and he demorphs. Uh-huh. Um, and he says to Cryak, you were too late, Cryak. Something got through to the howler's collective memory. What? He demanded. <laughs> Love. Love. <gasps> oh I know. God. They're only 13 or so. So cute. Oh, yeah. We did not talk about this at all. This is Jake. Jake does a great job of bluffing Guide, the escort. He says, don't lie to us, Guide. Have you ever met an Andalite before? Guide shot a nervous glance at Axe. No. Well, Andalites have the power to mind meld with people. They can look right inside your thoughts and know if they're lying. And if you are lying, they make your head explode. No one cracked a smile, although Marco had to struggle. Now Axe is a Vulcan. <laughs> Tobias has to be in private thought speak. Which is great, as like for me, as someone now who knows what Vulcans are. Mm. When I was 13, definitely did not know what Vulcans were. But also, I had not read book 25 at this point, And it took me a really long time to read book 25, because mm-hmm. I just couldn't find it. And But I knew they met some alien species that started with a V. And so I was very convinced that they met Vulcans in book 25. Aww. It that's turned amazing. out not to be true. But then when they met the Venber, I was like, but that's weird. Then when do they meet Vulcans? <laughs> uh, who are these Vulcans who are coming that's into amazing. things? 
I do think it's interesting that we've had so far in three books in a row, we had the Helmicrons, we had the Venber, oh, yeah. and then now we've got the these guys. What do you think we'll get in the next book? Um, <laughs> you don't have to predict it yet. Great. Though you will in like two seconds. Before we get to predictions, I have one thing, which is, do you have a strong mental picture of Cryak, Gray? <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, it's the Eye of Sauron, uh-huh. but on top of Robot. Yeah. And could you just read, when they go to Cryak, how, like when they get summoned to his chamber, the first couple of sentences there, how Jake describes him? Yes, I can't. He was huge. No arms. Arms were irrelevant to him. (laughs) He sat on what might have been a throne or might have been a part of him, I couldn't tell. Machine, creature, both, or something that was neither. He turned his single huge blood-red eye and looked down at me. So... When we started this podcast journey many months ago, I was, I think it was probably after book six. I was thinking like, yeah, I kind of have this idea of what Cryak looks like, but it doesn't really match the description in book six. <laughs> so I was like, I wonder how far off I am from like the fan art that people have created of Cryak. And with a simple Google search for Cryag, I have discovered what I think <laughs> is the canonical interpretation of what he must look like. It's on um, somebody's old tripod website, an Animorphs fan site that looks like it was maintained up until about book 30 or so, <laughs> is riddled with typos and is almost <laughs> impossible to like read the text on most of the pages. But I would just like to show you this person's fan art of Cryag because this is what I see when I think of Cryag. <laughs> this is the most delightful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> I can't wait to put this in the show notes. Everyone, go to our website, animorphology.com, and look at this week's episode so that you can click on this link. Because I know we've talked about websites before, but this is unbelievably good. I just don't understand. This person is a genius. It's exactly what is described. And it's somehow totally inappropriate for the, like, gravity of this creature. And, like, all the other fan art is, like, really gross or, like, haunting and, like... But, yeah, it's exactly what you said. A giant red eye on top of a robot. Also, no arms. Also, no arms. That is arms are amazing relevant and perfect. To I love it so much. <laughs> Oh my god. Uh, also, that whole page is just... That's hilarious. I'll make sure there aren't any other spoilers on the website. And okay. I'll send it to you. Please send me funny. the link. <laughs> god, that's so good. Okay. Love it. Amazing. So, should we talk about The Exposed? So, it's a Rachel book. Yeah. What's well, on the cover, Gray? Rachel's oh, it's beautiful. Turning into a giant squid. It's, it's so picturesque. Jenny is incorrect. <laughs> this is going to be a real bad description. Not least because... Her hair turns into the top of the squid, <laughs> which is, all right, sure, why not? It was probably just, it made visual sense. Maybe she'll turn into a squid with long blonde hair, and then we'll all, like, schloop inside the squid head. <laughs> schloop up into the cartilage. Yeah. Um, it will have to do something. Ugh, so gross. Um, okay. The exposed. They thought they'd seen it all. They were wrong. Four ellipses. <laughs> Dot the exposed. Okay. Um, they've already had one underwater base. Uh, and until somebody threw a chair through the window, it seemed to be going well. So maybe the Yerks are building another underwater base that the Animorphs are going to have to find. But this time it's deeper. Mm. That's why they need the squid. Which is why they need the squid. Oh, you know, can they go deeper? They have the, the deep sharks? waters. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, and... They are going to be exposed to some kind of 
disease or radiation or something oh. in the course. Because uh, all this underwater radiation is finally catching up to them. Gotta watch out for that underwater radiation. Yeah. Actually, water is a very good insulator against radiation. So, so uh, let's go with the waterborne disease or something. I don't know. Who or what is the drone? Are we? Is there another (laughs) alien? That's four in a row. There, there are new aliens. Uh, They look like Daleks. Oh, okay. Yeah, so search for a body, but with a thing inside. Is this Cryax next step after he's like the Howlers don't work? Get the Daleks to exterminate everything. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just like Cryak, the Daleks just want to exterminate. Yeah. That's what the droid are. Man, I hope that's true because four aliens in a row would be so much fun. Talking <laughs> new aliens. Yeah. Yeah, they're fun. They're good times. The thing is that I used to keep track of the aliens mm. thinking that they would be important. And one time that really worked out for me, right? <laughs> we met the Lyrans and then I was like, we're going to go to Lyra. And then weirdly we did. Yeah. It's never going to happen again. It was very <laughs> exciting that one time. So I keep thinking that, like, okay, now we've met the Helmicrons. Maybe they're going to go to Helmicra. Mm-hmm. And then we met the um, Venber. And maybe mm-hmm. we're going to, like, go back to that world. And then this time, you know, maybe they're going to go see the Iscourt again at some point. Mm-hmm. I feel like, no, that was that was a one-off. And okay. now we're never going mean, to go to another like point. you have, like, 30 books left. But, yeah. Randomly at book, like, 37, I'm going to say, well, they're going back to the Iscourt world. And <laughs> it's going to be true. And I'm going to be, you guys are going to be so impressed. If that's correct, the people listening to this will be utterly amazed yeah. right now. And you will be hailed as a prophetess. Remind me, everybody, book 37. Or somewhere in there. Next time, Animorphology, The Exposed. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. There are only five million things I want to talk about in this book. That's great. Three-hour episode. Cha-ching. Great. Let's really unhappy. <laughs> Good thing we get paid by the it. minute. <laughs>